the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Sitting here in the studio, in the offices of KPDQ and our sister stations, I'm a little bit lonely. On Friday, of course, we broadcast live from Mission Connection. It was so fun to hear the ambient sound of the crowds as they were coming into the auditorium for the first set of workshops and then for the... Uh, uh, the plenary session. Great weekend. If you have um, never attended Mission Connection, let me encourage you to put that on the calendar. It's uh, early in January, and what a great, encouraging, inspiring, and challenging weekend. Some great speakers uh, from the the main platform and from the workshops, and audio from the weekend will be available on the website for Mission Connection at some point in the not-too-distant future, so check that out. Um, you'll find some great uh, great content there. Well, I am back in the studio. Uh, we are acknowledging that the anniversary of Roe versus Wade has now come, and a lot of attention is focused on the sanctity of human life, the pro-life movement post Roe versus Wade um, uh, life in America, and we're going to be focusing on that off and on throughout the the week, uh, culminating in the March for Life that's coming up at the Oregon State Capitol on. The 28th, I believe that's Sunday, the 28th. We'll talk more about that with one of my guests, Lois Anderson, who is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. Uh, she'll join us to talk about the pro-life movement here in Oregon post Roe, federal efforts to codify Roe and the Oregon legislature, which, as you know, is now in session. Before that, we'll um, hear a conversation I had with Alexandra DeSanctis and Ryan Anderson, their book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. That's coming up just um, later this hour. But first, a look at some of the day's news. Stonewalling, President Biden is being slammed for the way he finally responded to questions about his classified documents. And lost profits, businesses are taking drastic action to protect against rampant shoplifting. In the 50-year uh, fight, the March for Life's new abortion battle is now against uh, uh, worse than role policies around the country. It's a grift. A Governor DeSantis ally is warning against donating to the Ready for Ron Pact. Uh, schooling California students, Gavin Newsom, who is the governor there, his wife has made a film. Her film is being shown in schools to push the gender ideology and boost his politics. Is that ethical? 2024 vision. Nikki Haley is exploring a presidential run. My guess is from this point forward, for the next several months, we're going to hear lots of names of individuals who are thinking about running in 2024. And uh, we understand the president is likely to make his announcement after the State of the Union address. Timing is everything. President Biden will not make an announcement on whether he'll run for reelection in 2024 until after he gives, as I mentioned, the State of the Union address. That's according to sources. They say that the timing of the announcement isn't related to an ongoing investigation into the president's handling of classified documents. Well, calling it very insulting, reporters are venting their frustration 
over White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre's handling or mishandling of the document's uh, scandal in press conferences. Meanwhile, Sean Hannity suggests Hunter Biden's proximity to the classified documents is concerning. Now, it's not clear he even knew they were in the garage, but that's one of the controversies surrounding the whole series of events. Plot twist and battle TV anchor caught uh, in a fling with a co-host is being accused of an affair with a staffer, and that's causing ethical questions at um, CNN. Life lessons. Monica Lewinsky marked 25 years since being in the public spotlight with a Vanity Fair essay recounting lessons she's learned. Well, on the brink, border city Yuma, Arizona, is on the brink of collapse as the migrant surge under President Biden's leadership overloads food banks and hospitals and threatens food security, a Yuma official announced. No peace for you. uh, Protesters, rather, gathered outside of the Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh's home on the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade's ruling. And President Biden has renominated several left-wing judges who couldn't make it out of the Democrat-controlled Congress. So this will be an interesting round. In a doc disorder, White House uh, lawyers reportedly requested the FBI search for uncovered a, or search that uncovered a fourth batch of misplaced classified documents inside the president's private residence. On Friday, Justice Department officials had previously stated that the 13-hour search of his Wilmington, Delaware home was consensual, but it wasn't clear which party had initiated it. It now appears that the White House requested the search uh, of its own accord, according to NBC News, citing White House sources. Well, Friday's batch of documents was the fourth to be found since November and the third to be found inside Biden's Wilmington home. On unanswered questions, high-profile Democrats are pinning the blame for mass uh, shooting that took place over the weekend before the facts came out. And uh, they said it was racially motivated. It's uh, becoming clear that this was a familial event. Biden blasted ABC uh, Martha Raddatz, hit the Biden administration for insisting they take classified documents seriously. And squandering the moment at the conference of U.S. mayors on Friday, President Biden assured Americans he is taking action on the border despite continued migrant surges. On Fox and Friends weekend Saturday, Miami mayor and president of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Francis Suarez, he responded to the president's claim, arguing that not only is the administration not taking action, but it's also squandering an opportunity to address threats to the Western Hemisphere and the uh, and empower nations in the Americas. Well, U.S. has reached the debt ceiling. The U.S. on Thursday last week hit the debt ceiling set by Congress, setting off a set of special measures from the Treasury Department to avoid default. Extraordinary measures include delaying some payments, including contributions to federal employee retirement plans to free up funds for essential payments, such as those for Social Security and debt instruments. The Supreme Court investigation into the Dobbs leak is inconclusive. This leak led to a failed assassination attempt of a Supreme Court judge. After nearly 11 months of an investigation into who leaked a draft decision signaling the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court announced last week its investigation is inconclusive. The court released a 20-page public copy of the investigation. The chief justice initially tapped the marshal of the Supreme Court to conduct the investigation. It's not clear if the FBI will follow up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll continue to look through some of the day's headlines and a conversation to follow with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up for the remainder of the program, we're going to focus our attention on the pro-life movement post-Roe. 
Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, a conversation I had with them. We'll feature that in the next uh, few segments and a conversation with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life on the pro-life movement, the federal effort to codify Roe, post Roe and the Oregon legislature. That's coming up in the remainder of today's program. Well, Russia continues to threaten nuclear war if the Ukraine war does not go to plan. And the FBI is offering a $25,000 reward for leads on attackers who targeted pro-life clinics. It's about time they do something about the terrorist attacks. Uh, The FBI offered the reward to sources who can provide information about the suspects responsible for a spate of attacks on pro-life pregnancy resource centers. Many of these centers have banded together to hire uh, private investigators to try to get to the bottom of what happened. The 50th annual March for Life featured former NFL coach Tony Dungy, uh, the retired coach uh, who sp- uh, sp- sparred last year with Senator Raphael Warnock over the lawmakers claim he is a pro-choice pastor, was one of the headliners today for the 50th March for Life in Washington. I should say, should say, should say yesterday. Amazon is closing its charity to help with lost profits. Amazon is shutting down its charity platform as part of the company's recent cost-cutting efforts. The Amazon Smile program that allows customers to donate a percentage of their purchase through the company to selected nonprofit organizations will end next month. And let me emphasize selected nonprofits. They excluded many conservative and certainly pro-life Charities. The Church of England plans to uphold traditional marriage in the upcoming synod. Now, why that's a headline gives you everything you need to know about the age we're in. Bishops in the Church of England are slated to uphold the institution's formal teaching that marriage is between one man and one woman during their general synod in London next month. Bishops instead will offer proposals that urge prayers of dedication, thanksgiving, or for God's blessing on same sex couples and offer an apology for the rejection, exclusion, and hostility. Uh, Dr. Rakib Ashan says, glad to see the Church of England showing some spine and defending traditional values when it comes to the sacred institution of marriage, but bending in other areas. Netflix CEO is planning to step down as the company shares fell 38 percent last year. Ivan Provorov, uh, Jersey's nearly sold out after um, standing for his faith. Well, the jerseys for the Philadelphia Flyers defenseman Ivan Provorov have sold out online days after the 26-year-old refused to wear a a gay pride-themed jersey for religious reasons. Both NHL shop and fanatics have listed Provorov's jersey as almost gone, and there's no longer any men's jersey with his name and number available. Alec Baldwin has been charged with involuntary manslaughter. (coughs) Excuse me. After the accidental shooting (coughs) on the film set, Rust. I have to tell you, I um, have been struggling with my voice, and yet for the um, Mission Connection Conference, God gave me just what I needed, not only to speak, but to sing. It's quite a story. We shared it with the worship team, but thank you, Lord. Alec Baldwin has been charged with involuntary manslaughter. Thousands of participants in the March for Life at the White House, um, uh, as the White House discussed codifying Roe versus Wade in federal law, is a picture of where we stand as a nation, pro Roe versus Wade. And Democrats uh, rushed to label the Montgomery Park shooting as racially motivated in the absence of supporting evidence that has since been, uh, according to law enforcement, it's actually looking for evidence suggesting that it was, in fact, motivated by a family um, dispute. 
Antifa staged a violent protest in Atlanta, although some media outlets are loath to refer to it as violence. Police arrested six protesters who turned violent in downtown Atlanta late Saturday night, setting a police car on fire, smashing windows of local businesses. Apparently, that's not considered violence by some. Independent journalist Andy No identified one of the arrested suspects as Francis Carroll, an Antifa activist who was out on bail for domestic terrorism and allegedly the son of a multimillionaire main <clears throat> family. Thank you, Sam, who's just slipped in to bring me some water. Appreciate that, and I apologize for the offensive sound of my voice. Chicago's Lori Lightfoot says the crime spree is due to people carrying cash. So that's what's behind it. Well, Chicago's crime rate has skyrocketed under the Democrat mayor, Lori Lightfoot's wing, um, making the city one of the most dangerous places in the U.S. However, rather than rethinking her soft on crime policies, she blames the crisis on everything else. Earlier this week, she suggested street vendors stop using cash to stem Chicago's pr- uh, crime problem. Uh, sh- her concrete solution to solve the problem, make sure that their money is secure. Don't use cash, if at all possible. Use other forms of transactions to take care of themselves. So it's as simple as that. Nike closed its flagship store in Seattle, citing crime, and Larry Elder and Charlie Kirk sounded off on the San Francisco reparations plan. The conservative TV and radio host Larry Elder on Thursday took aim at a new proposal there for reparations uh, uh, to pay each black longtime residents $5 million while warning that the movement in support of reparations is growing as young people are being indoctrinated into its Supporting narrative. Charlie Kirk says they want to guarantee minimum income for every black resident of ninety seven thousand dollars a year. I'm thinking about moving to San Francisco. Ninety seven thousand dollars a year. They want those payments to last for the next two hundred and fifty years. This is not some sort of abstract college essay. This is an actual policy recommendation done by the San Francisco government. An Illinois judge briefly halted a gun control bill amid Republican pushback, and the Biden administration blames Republicans for record immigration numbers. Not sure how the math works out. Democrat in the White House, Democrat over the Senate and the House until just the last few days. This, the Secret Service will release the Biden residence visitor, uh, uh, visitor records and a significant development regarding Joe Biden's classified documents cover up. The U.S. Secret Service will now provide information on visitors to Biden's Delaware home if Congress requests it. And the Republicans have already made it clear they will request it. Governor DeSantis has purged ESG from Florida's retirement system in a move to keep political interests out of Florida's public retirement pension. The governor signed off on a resolution on Tuesday that ensures public fiduciaries invest state funds in a matter that prioritizes the highest return on investment for Florida's taxpayers and retirees without considering the ideological agenda. President Biden had no regrets just before more documents were found. Last Thursday, the president was once again pressed for comments regarding the brewing scandal vis-a-vis his apparent mishandling of classified documents found at both his D.C. think tank and his home in Wilmington, Delaware. I think you're going to find there's nothing there, Biden stated, obtusely adding, I have no regrets. Just two days later, the Justice Department came uh, came in to comb through his Delaware home in response to objections raised over his private attorneys conducting the searches, and it found another tranche of classified documents. 
Minnesota's infanticide. Democrats in Minnesota are on the cusp of passing one of the most, the most expansive abortion bills in the U.S., which Democrat Governor Tim Walz is expected to sign. Dubbed the Protect Reproductive Options Act, the bill would not only eliminate all uh, previous state limits on abortion up until birth and even after, but it also seeks to expand the abortion industry via the use of taxpayer funding. Renee Carlson, general counsel for the True North Legal, spoke against the bill, observing that if it passes, cattle and reptiles will have more legal protections in Minnesota than Minnesota's vulnerable preborn children. Minnesota is poised to legalize infanticide. A Virginian teen sex trafficked twice after school hid her gender identity from her parents and was encouraged to do so by other adults. The U.S. is sending another $2.5 billion in military aid to Ukraine. Speaker McCarthy put the kibosh on proxy voting. And President Biden has no regrets about mishandling classified documents. Former President Trump claims he saved 100 million lives because of the covid vaccine dismissing any side effect concerns. Hollywood lost over $500 billion in market value in 2022, and the rate of U.S. union membership hit an all-time low despite campaigns. A nationwide strike hit France as unions fight Macron's plan to raise retirement age, the retirement age. President Biden's former COVID czar is set to become the new chief of staff. And existing home sales, well, they slide to cap the biggest annual drop Since 2008, middle-class philanthropy is collapsing, and most Americans oppose raising the debt ceiling without spending cuts, a poll finds. Pressure grows on Germany to authorize a tank shipment to break the Ukraine war stalemate. Well, on this day in history, 1368, China's Ming Dynasty, which would last nearly three centuries, begins as Zhu Yuanjiang, is formally proclaimed emperor following the collapse of the Huan uh, dynasty. 1789, Georgetown University is established in present-day Washington, D.C. 1845, Congress decides all national elections would be held on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. 1932, New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt announces his candidacy for the Democrat presidential nomination. 1933, the 20th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the so-called lame duck amendment, is ratified as Missouri approves it. 1950, the Israeli Knesset approves a resolution affirming Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. 1962, Jackie Robinson is elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in his first year of eligibility. 1964, the 24th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, eliminating the poll tax in federal election is ratified as South Dakota becomes the 38th state to endorse it. 1968, North Korea seizes the U.S. Navy intelligence ship USS Pueblo, commanded by Lloyd Pete Butcher, charging its crew with being on a spying mission. One sailor is killed and 82 are taken prisoner. Commandy Butcher and his sub crew would be released the following December after 11 months of captivity. 2009, President Barack Obama quietly ends the Bush administration's ban on giving federal money to international groups that perform abortions or provide information on the option. And finally, on this day in history, 2009, New York Governor David Patterson chooses Democratic Representative Kirsten Gillibrand to fill the Senate seat vacated by Hillary Rodham Clinton after Clinton is appointed U.S. Secretary of State by President Obama. Up next, a conversation I had with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis on the book they co-authored, 
tearing us apart. And later in the second hour, a conversation with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as we all know by now, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Many of us still marvel that it happened in our lifetimes. It does change things, but it does also present for us significant challenges. Well, just in time for the Supreme Court's official overruling of Roe versus Wade, pro-life scholar Ryan T. Anderson and pro-life journalist Alexandra DeSanctis released the ultimate guide, and I use that word deliberately, the ultimate guide to the pro-life policy issue titled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is captivating. It reframes the ongoing debate in the current climate with the truth and this um, that this 50, uh, nearly 50 years experiment uh, with um, unlimited abortion in America has harmed everyone, even its most passionate proponents. Tearing Us Apart is a comprehensive guide. It's made for everyone because the Supreme Court decision affected everyone all of our lives. Ryan T. Anderson is a Ph.D., the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a graduate of Princeton and Notre Dame. He is the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He lives on a small family farm in Virginia with his wife and their three children. Alexandra DeSanctis is visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is a staff writer at National Review, and is widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She, too, is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, and we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Welcome. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. This is such a significant moment because while Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision making on the subject of abortion has been returned to the people, the nation is grappling with how to move forward. And for many pro-lifers in particular, uh, the challenge for us is to rethink the the direction that we ought to go. Let's begin, as you do in the the book, uh, talking about the major harm that abortion uh, produces. It, you might assume your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Roe America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there. Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America, equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with a right to life. Um, so the, the, the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being, but then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style um, arguments that you get from, you know, one of the, form, the, the professors at my alma mater at Princeton, um, they can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through 
the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy um, that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being born and unborn. Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Well, I think Ryan covered it uh, pretty pretty successfully there. But uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is um, kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is uh, a, a human person, a human being and a, a human person, somehow um, a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have and a mother has, a father has to care for their children, not this is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him. Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk, talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to, to men in our culture uh, and empowered in our culture, she has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pervasive claim. I think this is the, the predominant argument in favor of abortion. And it, it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding the, the Roe v. Wade decision. The court said we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the, the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a, a really damaging notion for women um, for a number of reasons, you know, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. Uh, but the idea of abortion harms women, too, right? The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body, about pregnancy, about, you know, the female mode of reproduction. This takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world. Women have to just get rid of whatever the the consequences might be of sex and and act as though they were never pregnant uh, in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men. We're told that um, abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. And again, in the book, you go in great detail. And I've been in the pro-life movement for decades. This is the best I've ever read on the subject. But you go into detail uh, about the, the, the cost and the... Um, the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject uh, her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests. And the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on her, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we and, and first, you, uh, thank you for saying um, that um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this um, a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. Uh, and so it's gratifying to hear you um, say that about the book. And uh, what we wanted to show is that there's a better way of understanding what um, women's equality should look like. Um, that what we got for the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attributes 
right? The, 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 the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb, that to be equal to men, you have to deny that. You have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talks about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction, and true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, it says the, the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human, and we can structure our laws, we can structure our marketplaces, we can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously. One of the things that you argue in the book, uh, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad uh, set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who uh, who dare to speak up um, are simply denied, um, first of all, being heard and that they exist. Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the, the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. It's not we don't talk about it as safe, legal and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is, that's actually not most women's experience of abortion. We know uh, from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or a perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're, they're desperate, essentially, or they're not get, you know, getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's you know, uh, guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. Uh, at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are, are simply ignored or even attacked uh, when they, they share their experiences because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution. You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family, and so on. Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future? Yes. I mean, what what many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, uh, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner, an extended family. Um, uh, A really interesting statistic is you are a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage. You have a 4% chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Uh, Another way of putting uh, the statistic is that um, of all women who um, seek abortion, only 14% of them are married. By contrast, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Uh, Anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and, you know, enter the the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps um, uh, uh, allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them um, into the next stage of their of their lives. 
We're talking this afternoon uh, with Ryan Alexander and Alexandra, uh, excuse me, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read in this post-war era, whether you are pro-abortion or pro-life. Um, I would highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break. We will return in a moment and continue our conversation. So do please stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. At the time the book was being written and uh, just about to be released, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. It could not be more timely, giving us a perspective on where we go from here. Uh, and I so appreciate the uh, the effort that they put into writing uh, this um, manual, I would say, for moving forward. Uh, let me ask you about the decision the Supreme Court made. At the time, as I mentioned, you were writing this book. It wasn't clear which direction the court was going to go. They obviously overturned Roe versus Wade, and there's been a lot of discussion since about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support uh, abortion rights throughout uh, a pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, sure, so there's nothing. Was... You can take it, Ryan. <laughs> so, okay. I was going to say there's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed. Uh, to protect our right to choose to kill an unborn human being. Uh, Whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right, or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, um, or then the the hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had embraced later in life and many academic defenders of abortion. So, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy nor liberty nor um, equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution, uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error um, uh, 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Roe and Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know, more research needs to be done, and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet, that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn uh, human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies. We need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, We need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way, because ultimately we can't be half uh, abortion, half uh, pro-life in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, a house divided cannot stand. So eventually we need to come to a national But we're going to start by doing this state by state, right? We're not there yet, so we need to be um, making progress at the state level uh, today. You write in the book, Tearing Us Apart, how the pro-life community can respond to our current uh, situation. And we'll perhaps get into that a bit later, but it's an important part of the book. 
but but let me ask you um, the damage that has been done uh, to the medical profession in this nearly 50 years of abortion on demand before Roe versus Wade. Of course, abortion was legal in some places, including my home state, regrettably, my home state of Oregon and other uh, other states. But what has abortion on demand uh, done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required uh, preserving. Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a healthcare procedure, right? It's a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion, there are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death. And it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a, a country where this is accepted as a, a form of healthcare and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, uh, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is, and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now, instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents uh, to cure and heal, a, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to to kill. Um, and so that that has um, very unfortunate downstream effects on on all of our med- our uh, medical field. You know, it's rather interesting in the book, you offer some examples of medical professionals who practiced abortion um, some uh, for many, many years before coming to the realization that they are destroying a human body. It's it's difficult to imagine that you couldn't uh, that you would be involved in the practice and not recognize that until there's an epiphany at some point. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about um, how some of these medical professionals professionals who have had an about face? Uh, after having performed abortion for a long period of time and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known from a technical and medical standpoint all along. Sure. I mean, perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathan. Yes. Who is, you know, one of the founders of NARAL pro-choice, um, you know, one of the largest uh, abortion activist groups uh, and abortion uh, providers uh, in the country. And um I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions. He also oversaw the performing of several thousand abortions in clinics that he oversaw. Um, I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was um, in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book uh, was an abortionist um, whose daughter tragically died. And then when he returned to work and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. Um, And this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child. Um, Which is simply to say that, you know, there's a law written on the heart. Um, People know the truth, especially the the abortionists, because, you know, they they, they physically, they see the unborn child that they, uh, in some instances, are literally tearing apart limb by limb. Um, And then something needs to prick their conscience. Right? It, it, it's it's not enough just to know the facts. There also then, it seems, needs to be something that alivens them, awakens them, not just to a fact, but also to a value, to a moral norm, to a moral truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a religious conversion. Sometimes the religious conversion comes second, right? They first are c- converted to the pro-life cause, and then they start asking deeper questions. Well, what is it about life 
that explains the dignity and the sanctity, and then they arrive uh, at the conclusion of God. But, you know, every individual is unique, and so no two stories are going to be the same. Um, yeah. How has a, a legal abortion harmed our politics and the rule of law? Well, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Some of the, the main points we make in the book, I'll, I'll focus on, on one uh, main one, I guess, is the way that uh, the legalization of abortion has really broken down our uh, our political parties, and, and in particular, the Democratic Party. Um, you know, before Roe was decided, there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, a huge number of Democratic politicians consider themselves pro-life, even, you know, voted pro-life. Joe Biden, even right after Roe v. Wade himself, voted uh, in favor of a bill that would have essentially undone what had happened in Roe. And we know kind of where he ended up. So um, there's been a a big change on this in the Democratic Party. And I think we're all worse off because we have one of our two major political parties uh, that embraces abortion on demand for any reason, so much so that, uh, you know, you have Democratic presidential candidates now telling pro-lifers not to vote for them uh, because that's how how, uh, committed they are to abortion on demand, um, even though most Democrats, most Democratic voters are not where the party is on this issue at all. Only about 18 percent um, of Democratic voters support abortion on demand until birth. And yet the party has, has fully embraced this um, this position. And it, I think we're, we're all worse off because of this. We'd be a much better country if, if voters had a meaningful choice between two political parties, neither of which was, was committed to this kind of injustice. Mm-hmm. Uh, one example in a speech at the NAACP annual convention in Atlanta uh, earlier this month, the vice president uh, compared pro-lifers in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs uh, to the slaver, a slave owner of the Old South. Uh, she said our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. Uh, her historical reference was accurate, but the analogy was completely reversed. Uh, again, an example of the misunderstanding of what abortion on demand actually is. She got it exactly wrong. Yes. I mean, imagine the the claim, you know, if you don't like slavery, don't own the slaves. Or the claim, I'm personally opposed to slavery, but politically or publicly, I'm in favor of your choice to have a slave. I mean, that's what's at stake when someone says, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm you know, in favor of choice. Or if you don't like abortion... Don't don't have an abortion. Um, the idea that um, the the decide in this debate that's in favor of protecting the right to life of the unborn child is actually the analog to um, the slave owner is just ludicrous. And there have been a variety of academics trying to claim that the Thirteenth Amendment um, is actually the, the justification for uh, abortion. Um, and they just seem utterly unwilling to acknowledge that there's already a moral relationship that has taken place. There's already a relationship between that mother and that child. And it's not, you know, involuntary servitude to say that no one, including mothers, can kill their own, uh, can kill anyone, right? I mean, it's one thing to say we shouldn't kill strangers. It's another thing to say mothers shouldn't kill their own children. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick um, a quick break. Again, we're talking about uh, the fabulous book that should be in your library if you would like to be effective during this season, post-Roe, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. My guests, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read and I would highly recommend it. Uh, on the subject of abortion in America post-Roe. They cover how abortion harms children, how it harms women and their families, uh, how it harms equality and choice, one of the uh, champions of abortion on demand, uh, how it harms medicine and the rule of law, politics, uh, and the media and popular culture, and importantly, uh, what the pro-life movement should do next, which is precisely the question I want to put to our guests now. Given the situation we find ourselves in, I think many folks thought once Roe versus Wade is overturned, our work is done. We recognize now that that is not the case. What should the pro-life movement do next? Well, we talk about this a bit in our in our conclusion. Well, at length yes. in our conclusion, and we don't give... Um, too many specific prescriptions, but the main thing we call for is, first of all, charity among pro-lifers and, and prudence as we disagree and discern what the next right steps are, right? Because what's, what's possible in one state is not always going to be possible somewhere else. There are a number of states at this point that have almost total protections for unborn children from the moment of conception. And there are a lot of states where, unfortunately, those laws just aren't politically feasible right now. And so there has to be some kind of room for, for incrementalism and for understanding that we have to change hearts and minds, even as we push for more and more protective laws. Um, So that would be, I think, a major part of the strategy. I know that you write about pregnancy resource centers. They have been the subject of uh, violence and opposition of late since the uh, early leak of um, what was likely to be the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What do you say about these pro-life centers that in many cases outnumber abortion clinics across the country? Uh, and the value that they and the role that they will play moving forward in this post-Roe era. These pregnancy resource centers um, are a godsend to thousands of women, uh, women who don't want abortion, women who want to bring their children um, out of the womb and into the world. And they get no assistance from people who claim to be pro-choice. I mean, I think the attacks that we've seen of pregnancy resource centers really put to lie the claim that the other side is pro-choice. The other side, unfortunately, the activists on the other side is very much pro-abortion, right? That's what, that's the choice that Planned Parenthood will help you with. They won't actually help you if you're planning to be a parent and you have an unborn child in your womb who you want to uh, bring to term. The pregnancy resource centers do that. Um, and they exist merely to serve those women who voluntarily come to them, seeking their assistance. And that's why it's so utterly grotesque, if not downright satanic, that we've seen the attacks on them over the past several weeks and several months since the opinion was leaked. Uh, and, and I think it's also particularly um, uh, um, just unacceptable how unwilling law enforcement has been to go after the people perpetrating these crimes uh, and really you know, protecting the rights, the freedom, the safety of these pregnancy resource centers to minister uh, to women who are seeking their assistance. In the book, Tearing Us Apart, you make the point that abortion is more than a religious issue. But what would you say to those who argue that it's Christian to support women's right to abortion? We're hearing that a lot from lawmakers, but we might hear it a little closer to home as well. Well, I find this argument very absurd because it usually comes from the same people who, who try to claim that being opposed to abortion is just uh, forcing our religion on others. And they, they're very opposed to that. But then suddenly they also want to have it both ways and, and argue that uh, supporting abortion is Christian. So there's clearly a double standard here. But uh, more to the point, perhaps, it's, of course, not Christian to support killing innocent human beings. Now, it, it is Christian to support women in difficult circumstances who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, who need help 
uh, and support as they, they parent or, uh, you know, as they welcome their child. But killing that child is never actually a Christian solution, no matter what situation a woman might be facing. Uh, you know, telling her that it's a, a solution of some kind to enact violence, lethal violence against her child is, is deeply unchristian and, and deeply wrong. I like the phrase that you use throughout the book, and to say I like it is a bit odd, but um, lethal violence, to to subject a child to lethal violence, which is a perfect description of what abortion is. One of the points you make is that we don't really talk about abortion. We use euphemisms, but we don't talk about what actually happens, and we try to distance ourselves from that because I think to confront it face-on is perhaps too painful for most people. There are some, of course, who might be the exception. Uh, how how important is it for us to understand precisely what it is we're talking about, what happens in uh, these situations, and whether or not we, f- we frame our uh, opinions based on euphemisms or what's actually happening? Oh, it's vitally important. This is why the other side speaks in euphemism. It's why the other side um, doesn't actually speak clearly and truthfully about what's going on. It's why the other side right now, as we're speaking, is lying about ectopic pregnancy care, lying about miscarriage care to claim that pro-life laws uh, would prohibit care in these cases. It's why they use euphemisms like sex-selective abortion rather than, you know, using accurate language. This is uh, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex. I mean, and it's just so um, fascinating to me that the voices that are loudest in condemning racial discrimination, sex-based discrimination, disability-based discrimination, they go silent or even worse, they cheerlead when it's lethal discrimination on the basis of race, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex, lethal discrimination on the basis of disability, which is what we see when we have uh, more black babies being aborted Mm -hmm. than born in New York City. We have millions of missing girls across the globe. We have countries like Iceland claiming to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in reality, they have eradicated people with Down syndrome. They didn't find a cure for the genetic disorder. What they've done is successfully diagnosed and killed all of the um, children diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, so it's very important that we don't fall for the euphemism um, that the other side uses to talk about these issues, that we speak the truth clearly and compassionately. Well, I appreciate, too, that you go into the, the history and the founding of the abortion movement, that the eugenicist uh, perspective has been successful even in our century in that there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American babies who are subject to abortions in this country, uh, an inconvenient truth that, uh, again, is overlooked or minimized because this is creating opportunity for for black women moving forward. Yeah, this is a very disturbing argument. And, and you see, um, in fact, in the, the wake of Roe having been overturned, abortion supporters making the argument that this is disproportionately going to affect uh, non-white populations and women. And, and my first thought is, well, if that's true, shouldn't we be supporting these women, right? The idea that kind of ramping up abortion numbers or, or building more abortion facilities in these neighborhoods is not actually a solution. If, if women uh, of color are feeling like they have to choose abortion at higher rates, then that's a, a serious problem in our society. And we should be working to support those women, not just kind of helping them access abortion as much as, as, as uh, you know, Planned Parenthood would like them to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can pro-life, and we've touched on this a little bit, but pro-life advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life. We've talked about the pregnancy resource centers, but for the individual, what do you recommend? Because uh, I think when they read the book, they're, they're going to want to be proactive and not just better in informed. What can we do to help support women? 
there's an endless variety of things that we can do. And it all depends on what our station in life, our vocation in life is. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. Um, for many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Uh, look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution, perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. Um, perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive parent. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. It's going to um, the state house and speaking with your elected representatives to make sure that they pass the good laws that will be protecting the unborn babies. Maybe it's working on paid family leave or maternity care. I mean, there's a variety of uh, both kind of supply side and demand side uh, public policies that we can be looking at. The supply side being the abortionist, uh, the people who supply the lethal action, the demand. Why do women have a demand? Why, why do they think they need abortion? There are public policies that can address that as well. Um, so there really is an, you know, an infinite number of things uh, readers could do after um, finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is. Well, and again, I want to emphasize that at the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of uh, things to think about in terms of how we can uh, contribute to this new um, this new landscape post row in a state like Oregon. It's definitely an uphill battle, but one that we've been engaged in for for decades and will continue uh, in other parts of the country. There may be um, a restriction on abortion that we could only have dreamed of years ago. So there's plenty of work to be done. And it begins, as you pointed out. Uh, with prayer and then being willing to uh, to move forward in action. I, again, want to thank both of you for the uh, clearly the hard work that you did in putting this book together. And I would suggest that our listeners get a copy of the book, read it and um, purpose to move forward in favor of life. Again, the title is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. It. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. <clears throat> well, as you know, the 50th anniversary of Roe versus Wade has come, and nearly six months after the Supreme Court moved to overturn it. Well, what does that actually mean on the ground where abortions are performed? What does it mean here in the state of Oregon? Well, here to join us and talk about it is Lois Anderson. She is executive director of Oregon Right to Life. And I'm so grateful for the sacrifice she makes to be a leader in our community around the issue of abortion. Lois, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Um, thank you for the opportunity to be on today. Absolutely. I think for many of us who have worked and prayed and hoped to see the overturn of Roe versus Wade, first of all, most of us didn't think we'd see it in our lifetime. So that in and of itself was uh, quite something. But the expectation was Roe versus Wade is overturned. Our work has paid off. Our work is done. That has not been the case. Can you sort of paint a picture of where we are today post Roe? Sure. Well, I think that when we think, when we consider that um, Roe v. Wade took, it took almost 50 years to overturn it. And so we had 50 years of our institutions really being corrupted with this idea that abortion is necessary. And um, so that's not going to be undone Mm -hmm. overnight. Thankfully, there are states where um, there their work is close to being done for the time being, you know, where um, trigger laws have gone into place, where their legislatures and their governors have passed 
uh, protective laws that protect the unborn. And we're grateful for that. There are currently 12 states where you basically cannot get an abortion except for some medical emergencies or, or other um, other types of exceptions, um, depending on the state. So that, that's something that we should be excited about. And remember, when sometimes we're in Oregon and we forget that across the country um, that things are changing and have mm-hmm. been changed. Yeah. But, of course, we know that we live in a place where Washington, Oregon, California um, want to be known. Our political leaders want to be known as an abortion haven, as a place for women to come and have abortions and end the lives of their children. And so our our work is different and it's, and it's far from over. Um, but I we can't give in to discouragement because we do understand that that this has been four decades in the making and it, it won't change overnight. In some ways, the challenge is just the same. It's for the hearts and the minds of the people who are considering, who are imposing abortion. So the, the work continues in that in that way. Now, Oregon was among the first states in the nation before Roe versus Wade that had legalized abortion. So this is a major challenge for us here. And while I often think I wish I was in a pro-life state, I believe God has placed us here at this time, at this juncture, in order to do his work um, as difficult as it may be. And I know that you, Oregon Right to Life, and so many others have rolled your sleeves up and are continuing to do the work. Well, thank you for for summarizing it so well. That's that's very true. We we are in a specific place geographically at a specific time at God's design, and so I think for for us um, to be living in Oregon, knowing that we we have a specific purpose here, and we need to uh, be sure we know what that is and to be acting on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a. a uh, march, a celebration uh, on Sunday from the pro-life movement. We heard a lot in the in the news about the pro-abortion movement. Tell us a little bit about uh, the acknowledgement of the sanctity of human life that took place this weekend, not only at the state capitol, but in churches all across the, the state. Uh, well, actually, our church is coming up on this Saturday, the 28th. Um, there was, uh, and it will be at at the state capitol in Salem. Um, But I was honored to be in Washington, D.C. at the National March for Life. And I have to say, there's nothing like um, standing there and looking at the crowd and not being able to see the end of it. Mm. Um, To just know that how many um, thousands and thousands of people from across the country travel to be a part of what is the largest human rights demonstration um, in in the world, the long, longest lasting, largest human rights demonstration in the world. And it is for the unborn. Um, and so it was very encouraging. And uh, there, of course, were speakers and really the tone was very much um, we're celebrating that um, Roe v. Wade is overturned, but our work isn't done. I was reading an article earlier today and I apologize for the mistake on the date. Uh, but I was no, reading an, an article earlier today from uh, Gary Bauer, who was also at the March for Life. 
And he made the point that the annual march is unlike any other demonstration that takes place in Washington. Marches and protests happen regularly there, but most demonstrators are almost always seeking some sort of action or policy that benefits them. And that's totally fine in a free society. But the March for Life is different. We're not asking for any monetary or policy benefits for ourselves. Um, their bank accounts won't get bigger if they succeed. They're marching to give a voice to the one group of Americans who literally have no voice, our preborn babies. And that is such a, um, uh, accurate characterization of what being involved in that event really is all about. It's not ingratiating oneself, but giving voice to those who have no voice. That is so true. And it was beautifully said. Yeah. The vice president delivered a speech in Tallahassee at the pro-abortion event that took place uh, earlier. Uh, She, in making reference um, to the uh, Declaration of Independence, omitted the phrase right to life. We collectively believe and know America is a promise. It's a promise of freedom and liberty, she said, not just some, but for all. We are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Well, the original text, as we know, is we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. She deliberately sort of rewrote history and conveniently omitted the phrase that contradicted her message. Your thought on the, uh, the vice president's convenient omission of that phrase from the Declaration of Independence? Well, it's so sad. I just, I, I, I know that perhaps a normal reaction might be, might be outraged at that, but I, I just am so sad for her mm. and I'm so sad for the people who, who look at our amazing founding documents, who look at the incredible freedoms that, and liberties that we have um, in this country and think what I want to do with that is oppress and um, end the lives of millions of innocent babies. It just, it's just mind boggling to me. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an overwhelming sadness that that's where we've come to, uh, that now we're, now we're changing our language and actually trying to deny what is a fundamental principle of our country was which is everyone that has the right to life and it is the function of the government um, one of their core function is to protect the life of innocent human beings yeah, and now we have the opportunity to do it because we've overturned this bad supreme court and unjust unjust bad uh, supreme court decision and uh, instead of embracing that we're trying they're trying to double down on it yeah one observer said this point is obvious but when the right to life blows up your message so badly that you have to pretend it doesn't exist and maybe your message isn't very good and i think that's uh, definitely the case and you're right it is sad to consider the the gymnastics that one uh, goes through in order to avoid what is a central principle of this constitutional republic I noted that the Family Research Council, along with 13 other pro-life organizations, sent letters addressed to the leadership of CVS Health and Walgreens um, pharmacies, uh, calling on them to stop acting as de facto abortion centers by dispensing abortion-inducing drugs. Can you talk a little bit about the chemical abortion and the ease with which uh, these drugs are um, now available under the current administration post-Roe? Well, it it is... um 
a tragedy that that these um, the SDA has really abdicated their responsibility by um, loosening these regulations to the point where um, women will not be receiving even the most limited uh, examination and care to um, and then given these pills. Uh, abortion pills are dangerous. There have been at least 28 women who have died after they have uh, taken these pills. If you have any opportunity to listen or to read women's testimonies about going through chemical abortions, um, they want them to sound like this is just simple. Just take a pill and, and your problem is over. And that, that, is, that is not the case. It is dangerous for women. It's deadly for babies. And, and now we have this uh, situation where your corner pharmacy is going to basically be an abortion facility. So I think that there's a couple of things that we that we need to do. Um, we we need to let uh, if we're if we're a customer of a pharmacy. Um, my understanding and is that each individual uh, pharmacy that uh, has to complete the paperwork to be a certified um, to be certified to dispense the pills. So it is effective to let your local pharmacy know that you disagree with this and that you don't that you don't want them to to do it. Um, I think it's really important for us to be completely um, aware of the abortion pill reversal treatment. There is um, a website and a one eight hundred number. Many pregnancy centers offer this treatment. So women that take the it's a two pill uh, protocol. If you take the first pill. Within 72 hours, there is a way to work to reverse the effects of it. And more than 4,000 babies have reported to be saved through this um, treatment across the country. And um, I think third, we really need to be sure we're communicating with our family and our friends and at our church so that women understand, um, that families understand the dangers of, of what is going on, that we, un, that we understand that you can get these pills. You know, in Oregon, again, you know, we were sort of on the, on the front end where we've been a part of pilot projects. And so getting these pills by mail or going and picking up uh, was possible beforehand. Now they can be picked up at a pharmacy. So being educated and then educating those around us um, is, is really important. And then, you know, our national organizations, National Right to Life, Susan B. Anthony List, will be continuing to give us instructions and um, advice on further actions that we can take, and we will be letting people know about well, that's, those. That's encouraging that there is the possibility that individual pharmacies will opt out of dispensing these uh, life-ending drugs. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue the conversation with Lois Anderson and give you accurate information on the uh, event that's coming up next weekend. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll talk a bit about the Oregon legislature, the federal effort to codify role in federal law and uh, and much more, uh, Lois. Let me just um, let me ask you about um, efforts on the part of the uh, federal government to try to codify role, if that's the right way to put it, 
even though the U.S. Supreme Court has indicated there is no constitutional right to abortion. They're trying to overrule and override the states and um, make it uh, the same sort of idea that it has to be uh, legal in every state. Can you can you address that just a bit? Well, I think it, it's an on, it has been an ongoing effort um, at the federal level from um, pro-abortion leaders that they this idea of codifying Roe and putting it into um, federal law and and pushing mandates across uh, the country. I'm so incredibly grateful that we have um, a pro-life majority in uh, the U.S. Congress now, and Kevin McCarthy, who is an outspoken pro-life leader, is Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. And so we do have some ability to stop that effort for now. It just is a um, such a, an important example of, of how vital it is that that we vote and that pro-life pro-life people vote and that you prioritize the life issue because it really does make um, a huge, a huge difference. Um, the, depending on the, the wording of a law like that, it could, you know, in pro-life states, it would overturn their pro-life laws, their protective laws that they have put into place. It, it could um, jeopardize federal, federal funding for programs that, um, that help, pregnant and parenting women. So it, it could have a huge impact and uh, it, we need to stop it and make sure that that doesn't pass at a federal level. Well, speaking of lawmakers, the Oregon legislature is in session and Oregon Right to Life does an excellent job helping us recognize who pro-life lawmakers are uh, when we're at the ballot or in this case at our kitchen tables. But talk a little bit about the Oregon legislature, what we might anticipate in terms of uh, legislation having to do with the right to life and other issues uh, related to the sanctity of human life. What's your your thought on the Oregon legislature under the new governor? Well, I don't have very encouraging news. I'm sorry to say um, we're we're actually just a new package of bills um, was was introduced recently, and we're just making our way through it um, on behalf of the attorney general through the Department of Justice and. They're really focused on this idea of access, that somehow there's not already enough access and we should have enough access for people to come from out of state uh, who may not, they may come from a state where abortion is is not legal and they should come here and end the lives of their babies. So we're, we're still working through some of those. Um, there's funding issues. There's, uh, there was released today, um, the hotline um, that's also participated in by some major law firms in the state. So it it um, it can be a little discouraging mm-hmm. um, because because the powerful people in the state ongoing um, support abortion for any reason at any time during pregnancy, and they want to pay for as many uh, with your state tax dollars as they can. So we'll be continuing to let people know when those um, bills are up for hearings to ask for people to email and call their legislators. You know, I frequently have people say to me, well, it doesn't matter. Like my legislator is, is pro abortion and it, it doesn't, doesn't matter if I call or email them. Um, but our responsibility is to tell the truth mm-hmm. and our responsibility is to let them know what the reality is of what they're voting on. The response is, is up to them. So it is still really important to maintain our voice and to put pressure. Um, sometimes 
uh, those bills die. Sometimes they don't move forward, even even though the votes might be there. And and uh, part of that is because they hear from people in their district. I don't want to assume that everyone listening is familiar with the work of Oregon Right to Life. Maybe you could take a moment to talk a little bit about the uh, Oregon Right to Life in general, the Education Foundation and other aspects that help us as Oregonians understand what's happening in the state and around the country, keeps us well informed and gives us opportunity to have an impact. Oh, thanks, Georgine. Well, we take a comprehensive approach. So you mentioned the Education Foundation. We um, offer um, speakers that could come to your church or school to talk about human development um, and and um, what abortion what abortion is and why we need to uh, end it. And we have um, materials. We have displays. Many people may have seen our pro life displays at fairs. And uh, we have training in apologetics, um, which, you know, some people think about that as being your apologetics for your faith, but there's pro-life apologetics as well in, in learning how to make good arguments. So we want everybody to be equipped um, in their own community, in their own family, to be able to speak out about abortion. And then we have a full-time lobbyist who's at the Capitol today, um, meeting with legislators, evaluating bills. We have attorneys that we work with, both nationally and in the state, so we can evaluate this legislation and then um, let you know when it when it's time when it's time to act. And um, then we also have a pack. You mentioned that we put out a voters' guide so that um, you can vote for pro-life. Uh, candidates. And um, so I think that's an overall view. We do have local chapters as well. So if you're interested in getting involved in your local area and some of these education and advocacy um, opportunities, we'd, we'd love to have you join us. And I misspoke earlier, and uh, I wanted to make sure I clarify that the Oregon March for Life is coming up this weekend, January 28th, at the Oregon State Capitol. Now, we've had it here in Portland for many years. It's back at the Capitol, and it's an opportunity for pro-lifers to celebrate the sanctity of human life and to strengthen our resolve moving forward. Tell us a bit about the details. Well, we're going to start at 2.15. We have a a wonderful band that will be playing music. We um, have uh, several... uh, fellow pro-life organizations, pregnancy support organizations who will be there with tables and information um, to ha- uh, help people see additional ways that they can get involved to protect the unborn in Oregon and, and help mothers. And then at 2.30, we'll have a program uh, with speakers. We're welcoming Archbishop Sample. Um, also, we have um, uh, Danielle Bethel, who's a Marion County Commissioner, who um, has her own um, abortion story and, and is a wonderful pro-life uh, woman uh, office holder. Among others, our President Millie De- Mel- Melody, wow, Melody mm-hmm. Durrett will be speaking, and that'll last for about an hour, and then we will um, march in a, a, a route around the Capitol, and people can take that opportunity to to pray, to interact, um, hopefully with people who are driving or walking by. And it's um, like you said, it's a time for us to get together, to gather. We're definitely going to be celebrating that Roe is no longer, um, but also to resolve together for 
yet another year to work to end abortion legally and to make it unthinkable. Yeah. And I'd like to encourage our listeners. I've been a part of this event for many, many years, and it is the most encouraging event of the year. It can sometimes seem overwhelming and challenging and discouraging, but this event, I think, gives you the the courage and reminds you that you are not alone in this effort. You can join thousands of Oregonians, and that's that's not an exaggeration, at the Oregon Capitol um, for the uh, uh, the March for Life, the first March for Life, I should mention, since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. The band will begin, as she mentioned, at 2.15. The event starting at 2.30. You're not going to want to miss anything. The March for Life will begin immediately following uh, the rally. So you can find out more about that as well as the work of Oregon Right to Life at their website. And it's simply the initials ORTL.org. And all of the things that Lois has mentioned, you can find out about there, ORTL.org. I'll make sure that's on our website as well. Well, Lois, I want to commend you and your team for your faithfulness through difficult times, through uh, times of encouragement and discouragement, because this this fight, this effort is going to take uh, every ounce of our effort for the duration. And you've demonstrated what that looks like uh, to do it in a way that's motivated by faith and love. And you've done it the right way. And I want to thank you and uh, commend you and encourage you to continue in your work. Thank you so much, Georgine. That's that's very encouraging, and I, I appreciate it. I will also um, uh, pass that along to, to our staff and our board. Please do. Thank you, Lois. Thanks. Again, Lois Anderson is Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, um, and you can go to their website, ortl.org, for more information. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Throughout this week, we're going to be focusing on the pro-life movement as it exists post Roe versus Wade. I worked full time with Oregon Right to Life before I was asked to come and be a part of uh, this radio station here at KPDQ. So this is an organization and a movement that has been near and dear to my heart for decades and I'm so grateful to see the younger leadership uh, moving forward uh, with great um, fervor and commitment and to see so many young people. And that's one of the things I appreciate about the March for Life that's coming up. So many young people who do not flinch um, uh, at, at moving um, in our culture with a message of life. Well, Morse Tan wrote a, a column recently that um, I wanted to share portions of with you after row pro life movements just struggle uh, just struggle shifts to the states and he writes the sanctity of life for every human being remains the number one justice issue in America there's a lot of focus on justice this is among those just issues and it's the leading global human rights issue of the 21st century in 2022 abortion was among the leading causes of death in America and the leading cause of death worldwide with an estimated 44 million lives lost as Americans we've learned um, much about abortion over the past 5 decades we're grateful that Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood were soundly overturned at the Supreme Court but one thing is certain the pro-life movement is by no means over the just struggle has moved to each state He, Mr. Tan, had the privilege and opportunity to serve as the U.S. ambassador at large for global criminal justice. In that capacity, he led the U.S. effort to bring justice around the world to mass atrocities and crimes, genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. Whether it was monitoring the wrapping up of the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Colombia, 
the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which addressed some 1.6 million killings or employing the war crimes reward program to seek the capture of Felician Kabugo, the chief financer and primary instigator of the Rwandan genocide, which destroyed somewhere between 800,000 to 1.2 million lives or the 15 million exterminated by the North Korean government. I have fought for justice, Morse Tan says here in the United States. It may be difficult to stomach that we have destroyed the lives of some 63 million, that's the low estimate, of our children through legalized abortion. Sadly, these deaths in the United States have been lost behind a clinical curtain, out of the public eye and under the false pretense of constitutional rights. Shockingly, we had one of the most permissive legal frameworks for slaughtering unborn babies in the world, alongside those of countries such as North Korea, Vietnam, Canada, and China. Professor Jeff Tumala of Liberty University School of Law was carefully researched the historic Nuremberg trials in the aftermath of World War II, which counted abortion among the mass atrocities committed by Nazi war criminals. Along those lines, Arkansas passed legislation recognizing abortion as a crime against humanity, the challenge to which was withdrawn to the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals after the decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. In the Dobbs decision last June, the majority opinion pointed to baby Moses laws in all 50 states that enable women to leave their babies at public places such as fire stations so that they will be taken care of by the state. In addition, there are extensive lists of parents nationwide who want to adopt but are not given the opportunity. Instead, the dismal adoption rates are cited as a reason abortion is necessary in the Dobbs dissent. The dissenting opinion in Dobbs also asserted that abortion rights were necessary for the full citizenship of women. Susan B. Anthony or Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who advocated for women and their children, would be shocked to hear the dissent's view that destroying one's offspring is necessary for full citizenship. Just as we recognize this week the courage of Martin Luther King Jr. in championing civil rights and promoting legislation that overturned Jim Crow laws in America, we should not ignore the legacy of abortion in minority communities. Alveda King, the niece of Martin Luther King uh, Jr., poignantly asks, how can we live the dream if we are killing our children? Abortion is the leading cause of death for African-Americans, and most Planned Parenthood abortion clinics are in neighborhoods with large minority populations. In New York City, more African-Americans are aborted than are born. This is by design. This was Margaret Sanger's dream. Even a cursory look at the life and writings of Margaret Sanger, who advocated for racist eugenics as the founder of Planned Parenthood, demonstrates that this was also by design, the stunning final solution against racial minorities. In terms of federally protected and endangered species, the embryo of a sea turtle or the egg of a migratory bird currently has more protection from certain state governments than do human babies in their mother's womb. The scriptures teach in Psalm 139, 13 and 14, for you were created You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Likewise, it also makes plain from Hebrew, from the Hebrew law, that an unborn child should be treated as a human being. Well, there's much more that could be said. But while Dobbs has finally overturned Roe and Casey, our work to promote and protect the lives of unborn and extend constitutional rights and protections to the most vulnerable is by no means finished. Contrary to the current positive law in certain states, every child in America deserves the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness 
proclaimed in our founding document, the Declaration of Independence. Let's pray that one day that will be the case. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.